Hello and welcome to our tour of Shrewsbury Abbey. This is by far the biggest, longest tour that you're going to take through this collection and there's a reason for it. We're going to start you off outside Flaming Great just underneath the, the train viaduct and if you look around you at that start point, um, everything you see there in front of you, um, you know, in the direction of the abbey would have been part of the abbey and further too. So it was a huge area and we have lots to cover today. So I hope you got your walking shoes on bit of advice um if nigel baker who is your amazing tour today and uh, tells you he's just moved on to a spot you can hit pause walk to that spot and then press play again because it's very hard to use um location points during this audio only tour but to give you an idea we're going to walk towards the front of the church then we're going to go in a counterclockwise movement around the church back to the main door on the main road you're going to go inside the church do a lap on the inside of the church come out cross the road you're going to look at the artifacts and bits that we have across the road you're then going to turn right move towards um, the shropshire wildlife trust we're going to take a stop in there we're going to come out back round again until the end of shropshire wildlife trust which is where we'll end it's a, it's a long tour, but it is fantastic, and Nigel is going to blow your mind. So thank you for enjoying this tour. I will catch you guys at the end. Welcome to a tour of Shrewsbury Abbey. I'm standing underneath the railway viaduct on the town side of the abbey, and as an archaeologist, I'm appreciating just how much the scenery here has changed in the last few hundred years. So the railway viaduct itself runs exactly on the course of a whole second channel of the River Severn which has disappeared slowly, slowly over the last four or five hundred years. So I'm standing looking at the West Tower of Shrewsbury Abbey. It's a famous Shrewsbury landmark going back to the end of the Middle Ages. But when it was built, it was built basically overlooking the river. Shrewsbury Abbey was founded as a riverside abbey uh, and the channel that it was founded on has slowly silted up over the years and now is still there but running in culverts deep under the modern streets. The other thing that you have to kind of get your head around understanding Shrewsbury Abbey is a big destructive episode in its history which happened in 1836. So standing looking at the Abbey Church towering over us in the distance, uh, there's a main road that runs to its right, to its south, uh, and that is the main road, Abbey Foregate, but a course which was uh, basically bashed through the ruins of the Abbey's cloisters in 1836 by the engineer Thomas Telford as part of his improvements of the London to Holyhead Road, which is all to do with the Act of Union with Ireland and making a good political sound connection between London and Dublin. And unfortunately for Shrewsbury, that meant bashing uh, a new modern road right the way through the ruins of its abbey. To start exploring Shrewsbury Abbey, we're going to go and have a look at its major surviving monument, the Great Abbey Church, partly Norman, 
partly from about 1400, partly Victorian. What we're going to do now is walk towards the Abbey Church, past the phone box, past the red pillar box, uh, and stop outside the Great West Front and have a quick look at that and do a quick circuit of the outside, going anti-clockwise, and then go inside and have a look and see what is to be seen. OK, I'm standing outside the west front of the Abbey, right outside its main front door, and I'm looking up at the tower, which rises, what, 30 metres above me, uh, and I'm looking up at the Great West Window, which, when the West Tower was built in about 1390, 1395, something like that, was absolutely spot-on, up-to-the-minute architecture. It's the first example we've got of the latest Gothic style in traceried windows, tracery church windows, uh, and we know that this end of the Abbey was rebuilt in about 1400, uh, and a lot of other work was done at the same time in the Abbey, probably because they were rolling in money because within the church they had the tomb of St Winifred and pilgrims came from far and wide to visit the tomb of St Winifred and make offerings there which uh, kept the Abbey sort of well endowed and, and, and wealthy uh, and they rebuilt a lot of their precinct. But when we go to the right and start to go around the outside of the church and have a look at the side of the church, we can see more of the original Norman architecture which goes right back to the first generation after the Norman conquest, basically back, takes us back into the 1080s and the 1090s. OK, I'm now about halfway down the right-hand side, the south side of the Abbey Church, and I'm looking at the Norman stonework laid by masons around about the 1090s, 1100, something like that. And in front of us, there's a kind of a ruin sticking out from the main wall with what looked like two doorways in it. They are not, in fact, doorways. They are the doors to two cupboards, because where we are in relation to the abbey when it was really an abbey is we're standing where the north side of the cloisters would have been. The covered walks uh, arranged around like a courtyard on the south side of a church. And traditionally, the north walk of the cloisters in any abbey was where all the writing was done and where the monks you know, wrote out manuscripts and copied books. And they had to have book cupboards to keep all their kit in so that they could lock them up at the end of the day. And those book cupboards uh, were always at one end of the north side of the cloisters, and that's what those two doorways are. So they're not really doors, they are... Uh, cupboard doors and we are walking along the roof has long long gone the remains of the cloister foundations are maybe a meter or two below us but every other sign of the cloisters which adjoined the church are not really very obvious but we're going to come across those later so we're going to go through the back of a book cupboard and have a look at what looks like but isn't a ruined part of a medieval church OK, I've just come through the back of a medieval book cupboard and I'm looking up at the, uh, the southern arm of the church, the, the, the southern transept, and there's a, like a stub of ruined wall which you can follow with the eye up to kind of the level of the gutters. And if you look really carefully, the, the character of uh, 
the ruin changes from kind of random rubbly stone that looks like a proper ruin to something that looks ever so slightly like a folly. And the reason is that the eastern end of a church, the altar end of a church, uh, was rebuilt by the Victorians. It was rebuilt by an architect called J.L. Pearson, a guy who's most famous for rebuilding Truro Cathedral at the end of the 19th century. But they hoped to do a lot more. So what they did was they uh, rebuilt the eastern end of the church, they built part of a transept, but then the money ran out. So what they did was, where they stopped building, they made the end of a wall look like a ruin, so that when they got extra cash from fundraising a few years down the line, they could just key in the new stonework and carry on. But they never got the money. So we have a partly a real ruin and partly a Victorian phony ruin. Now carried on a little further and I'm standing round the back of the Abbey Church at its east end and I'm uh, surrounded by Victorian tomb slabs in every direction and I'm looking up at the outside wall above the altar inside um, of the Victorian east end of the church. What you don't see is what the original Abbey Church would have looked like. But we know from geophysical survey, from uh, excavating trenches in the churchyard here, and also from contemporary historical documents, we know exactly what the east end of a church looked like back in the medieval period. Uh, and it was semicircular. It had what's called an apsidal end. It had a big semicircular apse, probably with chapels sticking out of it. Uh, we know there was a lady chapel that ran east from the Abbey Church. We're not far how far out it went. But all of this lot was demolished in 1540 when Henry VIII's commissioners came to Shrewsbury Abbey and shut it down as part of the Reformation, as part of Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries. And one of their big imperatives, the kind of the orders of the day, were to go round the abbeys, the priories, the friaries, all the monastic institutions in the country, and close down the bits which were only used by the monks. So the way the abbey church worked back in the Middle Ages when the monks were still here was that the west end of the church, which survived the dissolution, was used by the local inhabitants. That was part of the parish of Abbey Forgate. It was their parish church. The eastern end of the church, where the high altar was, was only used by the monks. So to prevent monastic reoccupation of the abbey church, it all had to go. It all had to come down. So this end of the church was demolished promptly in 1540 and hasn't been seen since other than, as I say, in the bottom of holes in the ground. I'm now standing on the far side of the Abbey Church away from the main road uh, and I'm looking up still at the Victorian uh, east end of the church where we have a similar situation to what we've just seen on the main road side of the church in the sense that there is a partly real medieval ruin sticking out and partly Victorian phony ruin where the builders of the 1890s ran out of money before they were able to build a new north transept 
Um, so we have a row of three tombs in front of the wall which they run up um, across the building as far as they'd been able to extend it and to their right we've got this ruined stub of wall which is all that's left of the north transept. That would have been used just by the monks, it would have been filled with altars all the way along the east wall uh, but that had to come down at the dissolution so we've just got a few meters of the wall and one 13th century window, a ruined 13th century window sticking out of the top of it. If we now wander a little bit further along the north side of the Abbey Church, we've back in the medieval bit of the church and we've got uh, three tall medieval windows uh, each one with a gable on top. It looks like kind of the, the ends of three houses side by side, but if you look above those you can see great semicircular arches, a row of one, two, three arches I can see from here, um, with Victorian stone windows within the old Norman semicircular arches. Now what's going on here is quite complicated because Shrewsbury Abbey is an absolutely classic English medieval great church. It's had bits added to it, bits have fallen off, bits have been demolished, so the whole story is quite complicated. But what has happened here is that in the original uh, form of the church you would have had uh, a side aisle with a, a pitched roof sloping down to the outside and then above that you've got a missing first floor gallery and that uh, communicated with the inside of the church via this row of three semicircular arches which are called a triforium arcade in the original terminology uh, and they would have been a sort of processional way used by the monks at first floor level so that they could look down into the body of the church but after a while the triforium and its gallery came down and was replaced by these gabled roofs as they extended the roof of the side aisle upwards into the space where the gallery had been. And then above that you can see uh, a change in masonry. So the ground floor, the first floor, is mostly a mixture of grey and purple small blocks of stone and then above the semicircular arches of the Triforium you can see that the sandstone has come from a completely different source and it's the colour of a strong cup of tea, a kind of a mid-brown with some washed out bits and that again is Victorian work. That's the sort of the top story, what's called the clear story, that introduces light into the church you know, from a row of windows just below over roof but that again was added at the end of the 19th century. Right passing a little further along down the the far side of the abbey church we've come to the north porch uh, which was an addition to the original building and again is of all sorts of different dates so you can see a date of 1640 carved in the uh, the timbers over the present door but the, the timber is later 
than the actual surrounding stonework, the bottom story of which dates back to the 1200s, the top story of which, which is the Abbey office these days, uh, dates probably to the 1400s. Um, that is a different colour stone, and you can see from the remains of the statues in niches up there at first floor level just how fancy some of the bits of the abbey were in the original building. Of course, a lot of that got stripped out at the Reformation. Okay, so that really completes our quick tour of the outside of the Abbey Church. We're going to pass around the west front. We're going to go past the main door, which isn't always in use, and we're going to go into the everyday door, as it were, on the main road side of the Abbey Church and see what is to be seen inside. Okay, I've just walked in through the, the south door, the most usually used door into the Abbey Church off, off the main road, and I'm now standing in the south aisle, the side aisle, and I'm looking to my right past the rows and rows of effigies of important people uh, from the Middle Ages and a little bit later, and somewhere amongst them is the effigy covering the tomb said to be of Roger, Mon Roger of Montgomery, who was uh, a great pal of William the Conqueror, who came over with the conquest and he was Earl of Shrewsbury and Shropshire uh, until his death just before 1100 and just before he died um, having founded Shrewsbury Abbey in the 1080s um, he asked to become a monk and he took vows and was basically buried by the Norman monks of the abbey that he himself had founded and so what I'm going to do now is walk into the middle of a church and I think the thing to do at this point is really just to look upwards and just get an impression of what a tall and completely magnificent building this is. This is the nearest building that Shrewsbury has to a Norman cathedral. It's part of the Benedictine Abbey. We're towards the west end of the church, which is where ordinary people would have been allowed to come and worship. And I'm now looking up through kind of three stories, uh, really, with great big semicircular arches to my right of the Norman nave. Above those are the arches called the Triforium Arcade. They've been filled in with Victorian windows, but originally they would have been open with galleries on the outside, and then right up at the top are what are called the clear story windows, the second floor level windows just under the roof, uh, which would have admitted light to the church. Once you get your eye into the architecture, you can see all the differences in the phases of building here. So where I'm standing towards the west end, I'm looking at a pair of pointed Gothic arches. Those date to the 1390s, when the whole of the west end of the church was rebuilt, probably with money from pilgrim traffic coming to the shrine of St. Winifred. And you can see just to the right of the right-hand pointed arch, just the stump of one of the semicircular arches and that shows you where the late 14th century builders took over from and demolished part of the original Norman structure. And then over to my right, down the far east end of the church, above the altar, uh, is the rather magnificent east end of the church, the chancel, uh, which is in fact Victorian and is a bit shorter than the original building. The uh, chancel, having been added 
um, by the Victorian architect J.L. Pearson, the architect of Truro Cathedral. Okay, now looking up to my left, I'm looking at the inside of a great west window and the light is streaming through the, the west end and you can see up in the top of a window um, some of the stained glass. Uh, a lot of it is replacement, but some of it at least is original and goes all the way back to the 1390s. And the roof of the tower was restored in oh, about 20 years ago, back in sort of 2000 or thereabouts, and I had as an archaeologist the rare privilege of going up on the scaffolding inside the tower and exploring the belfry and finding the original timber work which had been put in at that date by the builders of the tower and finding fragments of the original stained glass windows incorporated um, in amongst the replacement stained glass but that's really one for the builders and the archaeologists. I've now just walked in a straight line across to the opposite side of the church, the north side of the church, and I'm going to turn to my right. I've got the toilets on my left and a rather fine Elizabethan effigy, and I'm turning to my right and I'm going to walk down the length of the north aisle past a medieval effigy lying on a slab on my right, and then I come to two carved stone panels with really fancy carving. And the topmost panel is one which was found, it was rediscovered in the 19th century, reused elsewhere, and you got three figures um, in niches on the top panel. And one of those has been identified as St. Winifred, um, really the, not the patron saint of the Abbey, but uh, the major cult uh, that was housed within the abbey and the other figure is a saint called St Bino who was St Winifred's confessor and these are both um, Highland Welsh saints who were kind of borrowed by the monks in the 1130s and this is a fairly common story where the Normans created a religious institution on fresh ground as it were they quite often sought out saints to celebrate and it might be said to attract money as well from offerings they sought out saints to install in their new religious institutions and I wouldn't go so far as to say they went and stole the, the bones of St Winifred from her churchyard in North Wales, but they, they, they dug her up. She was a venerated figure in Wales, and they dug her up from the churchyard with the permission of the local bishop, it has to be said, uh, and they installed her relics um, by the high altar in the Abbey Church here in Shrewsbury. The procession by which her relics were brought down from North Wales is well recorded with miracles said to be happening wherever the monks stopped to rest with her body overnight. Uh, as we would say today, a whole lot of hoopla was involved in bringing her relics down from North Wales to Shrewsbury Abbey and installing them with great ceremony. And it was a fruitful source of revenue um, for the monks uh, in later centuries. And you have to remember that although Shrewsbury Abbey it, as a Benedictine abbey has long gone. It's really just the church that survives. The abbey itself was here for nearly 500 years so it's a major chapter of Shrewsbury's history, which has kind of vanished from us.
Right, I'm now saying goodbye to St Winifred, leaving her and St Bino on our left, and I'm carrying on down the north side aisle towards the boarded-off end uh, where the organ sits behind the boards. But I'm just going to stop and look at the rather nice Norman arch here. Very, very tall arch and very, very narrow uh, the arch supported on what are called cushion capitals. These look like pillows on the tops of the pillars supporting the arch. Right, just beyond the boards, closing off the end of the north aisle, we have where the north transept should be, um, but instead what we have is the beginning of a Victorian part of a church with the great organ installed here. So this is really as far as we can go eastwards within the medieval fabric. Beyond that, it's all the work of the end of the Victorian period. So I'm now going to turn and recross the body of the church and go and have a look at the south aisle. Okay, I've now uh, crossed over the width of the church, leaving the altar on my left, and I'm now standing in the south aisle, and I'm looking at a stone effigy, basically uh, a carving of a knight in full armour lying on the lid of a sarcophagus or tomb, and the brass plate uh, in the wall behind him records that this is said to be the effigy of Roger of Montgomery, the Norman founder of Shrewsbury Abbey back in the 1080s. There's a slight problem here in the sense that when you look at the style of the armour of the knight in question and the form of the effigy, it's 13th century. Uh, so there is no way that Roger of Montgomery can have been buried under this effigy. They must have put the effigy on as an afterthought, maybe a century after Roger of Montgomery um, had, had, had died. So one hopes that it's all genuine and that this does represent the site of Roger of Montgomery's tomb. But to find out if he's really under this later carving set to represent him, I'm afraid that would be a job for the archaeologists. Okay, leaving Roger of Montgomery, I can't help looking at the floor um, because you've got stone slabs here, but you've also got a lot of grave slabs. I'm now standing on top of a lady called Hannah Batteridge who departed this life in May 1764. And, you know, there are many, many more besides. But what you can't see here is that the whole of this floor is absolutely peppered with vaults and graves. And we know this basically for two reasons. The first is that there was a, uh, a notorious flood here. The Abbey Church is subject to occasional floods. And there was one flood in particular a couple of hundred years ago that wreaked havoc in the floor of the church because a lot of the supporting walls of the, uh, the grave slabs collapsed um, because of water logging. And when the church wardens came in as the flood water subsided, a lot of the, the stones covering the, the graves in the floor were kind of upended. And they said it was a horrendous scene. It looked like the resurrection was about to happen and they expected people to climb out of the graves but as a consequence of the burial of 
literally thousands of people under the floors here when the church was restored in the 1860s by a local architect called Samuel Poutney Smith. What he did was uh, cast a very early a concrete slab over the whole of the floor of the church to seal off this kind of nightmare Swiss cheese effect of multiple burials and make the church secure against uh, future flooding to make sure nothing like that would happen again. When the church flooded the last time was in about 2000 uh, and there was a lot of restoration work um, on the pews and on the floors and they got the archaeologists in uh, and I was very fortunate to get to dig three test holes through this concrete. And all I can say is that Samuel Pountney Smith certainly knew how to mix concrete. Uh, and so uh, the Abbey Church, as a great historic building, has all sorts of issues over the years. But I think its floor is going to be safe for millennia to come. And really, that is the end of the tour of the Abbey Church. And it's time to walk back along the South Isle, past the Tudor effigies on the left, and exit again through the South Door and cross the main road. Right, well, we've finished with the inside of the Abbey. I've just walked out through the South Door facing the main road. But we're definitely not finished with the Abbey as a whole because, of course, what we've not seen are the remains of all the monks' buildings. And we've got a bit to look at yet and a bit to think about where archaeology and history has shown us what used to be there, though you can't see it anymore. OK, I've now crossed the busy main road. Thankfully, there's a little traffic island just outside the south door of the Abbey Church. It's a good place to cross. And once you're across the road, you're faced with this little area of rather nice garden with iron railings in the front. And at the back of it, a really strange-looking little building, which looks a little bit like, I guess, people have compared it to a telephone kiosk. Some people have said it looks like a rocket but it's uh, an open-sided building with like a pyramidal roof standing on a stone plinth. And it's very difficult to see from the way it looks now what it was. But you have to remember that the main road doesn't, in historical terms, really exist. That was broken by Thomas Telford right through where the cloisters had been. So we're on the south side of the cloisters and what we're looking at is the space that was once occupied by the monks' dining room, the monks' refectory. And the thing about the Benedictine monks is that they had a rule that as you sat communally eating your meal in the monastic refectory, uh, you sat in silence, but you sat there listening to one of your brothers, one of your brother monks, reading from the scriptures from a pulpit in the south wall of the cloisters. And what we have here is the remains of the monastic refectory pulpit. So you, what you have to imagine is not a garden here with planting and shrubbery and paving, but a hall-like building with a big open timber roof uh, and long tables with silent uh, monks sat eating their meal uh, and when one of their brothers reading from the scriptures up there in the pulpit. How the refectory pulpit comes to survive when the refectory itself has gone from around it is 
uh, a different story. Basically, a refectory, because that was part of a monk's equipment, as it were, had to be demolished in 1540 by Henry VIII's guys. But the pulpit itself was saved, and we're pretty sure that it was saved because uh, the bloke who bought the abbey at the dissolution, William Langley, uh, who was a Shrewsbury tailor, a wealthy merchant, uh, took over the abbot's lodgings, which had stood just behind the refectory, and I think it was probably he who asked for the pulpit to be saved so that he could turn it into a little summer house in what was to become his front garden. Because when you get up close to uh, the refectory pulpit, which we can't do today, I'm afraid, because it's locked off, um, you find that it's got its own little self-contained roof. The openings, which would have to have been open for the monk to read the scriptures through, have been glazed and a lock and a door has been put on the pulpit. So you have to imagine William Langley at some time in the later 1540s, the monks have gone, the buildings have come down, but you have to imagine Langley and his family descending the stairs from his house behind and going to have a picnic in his little summer house, which is all that's left of the monastic refectory pulpit. OK, having stared through the railings at the refectory pulpit, I'm now going to turn to my right and walk along the pavement of Thomas Telford's new main road of 1838, past the Abbey bus stop, and just have a look over to the left at the Abbey car park, which is a kind of strange thing to do, but there's a good archaeological reason for it, of course. I've now stopped in the bus stop, and I've turned to my left, and I'm staring over the massed cars in the Abbey car park, but what I'm seeing is what you can't actually see anymore, which is what used to be here. And once upon a time, back in the Middle Ages, what you'd have seen, first of all, is a range of buildings stretching right across in front of you, uh, because all the Abbey's domestic buildings, all the buildings that needed things like running water and drains, were arrayed along the south side of the precinct, because on the other side ran the Raybrook and a... a, a a stream that carried the water to and from the Abbey's watermill, and beyond that a pair of fish ponds. When we began this tour, I said that the Abbey was a kind of a watery kind of site, uh, and the south side is the floodplain of the Raybrook. The ground has come up, it's been raised by two or three metres. So you're looking at a flat landscape, but originally you'd have been looking at a row of medieval buildings occupied by the monks and a slope at the back of them down to much lower ground with fish ponds and streams. I've now walked a little bit further along the pavement and turned into the courtyard of the Shropshire Wildlife Trust, which is open at the moment and free, and I've got a fairly varied mixture uh, of things to look at in front of me. First of all, the gardens with uh, recreated timber frame buildings around them, and then over in front of me to the left, a rather fine mid-18th century house known as the Queen Anne House, uh, which are the offices of the Wildlife Trust, and then to my right in front of me, a very strange-looking building which is a mixture of Victorian brick and glazed windows but has a gable wall and the end wall facing me with wooden steps going up to a first floor door 
and the wall itself is built of the same kind of red sandstone as the Abbey Church. And it's an immediate clue that we're looking at another surviving fragment of the Abbey buildings. But to find out what it is, because it is one of the strangest medieval buildings in Shropshire, we're going to have to walk out of the uh, Shropshire Wildlife Trust and just go around the corner and see what there is to be seen by the pedestrian crossing. I've now come round the corner. I'm still outside the Shropshire Wildlife Trust headquarters. Uh, I'm looking at another sandstone wall, which is a dead giveaway for an abbey building. But I'm looking at the base of the wall and there's something very strange here, which is that you can see the top of one and a half pointed medieval door arches. So question is, why have you got door arches over here? And there's a very strange answer, which is that once upon a time, there was, uh, this sandstone building was much longer uh, buttressed all the way along and between each of the buttresses was at ground level or just below ground level there was a doorway and this, this building extended right across the west side of a precinct it kind of closed off the precinct on the town side but when it was originally built it was built on the old eastern channel of the River Severn, the channel which has disappeared and is now followed by the railway viaduct. So as this building stood, as it was at the end of the Middle Ages, well, I would have been standing about two metres below the level of the present pavement, and I would have been standing on some kind of dock or quay or wharf uh, and I would have been able to go through one of these arches into the basement of a building now occupied by the Wildlife Trust. We know quite a lot about this building because it stood largely intact until Thomas Telford drove his new main road through in 1836. So from uh, endless uh, woodcuts and engravings, we know all about this building, which was sometimes called the Old Infirmary. And it never was an infirmary in the sense of a place where medical care would have been offered to monks or the general public. It may, however, have been what the monks would have called the hospitium. Same word as you find in hospitality, meaning a place where hospitality was offered to visitors, people from outside the abbey, and probably particularly to pilgrims. Excavating on the site of the Wildlife Trust's front garden in the 1980s with Birmingham University, what we found there was a kitchen dating to about 1400 that served food to people, but whoever it was serving food to, they obviously weren't monks because we know where the monks' refectory was, and it was some distance away. The people who were getting the food served to them in this area were almost certainly pilgrims. And we think that because we also found a dump of rubbish just outside the kitchen. And amongst the rubbish were loads and loads of discarded, worn-out shoe soles with holes in them. And when our leather expert looked at the shoe, so shoe soles, it's very difficult to say that, she found what she called a bipolar distribution of shoe sizes. In other words, there were great big boots and kind of sizes 8, 9, 10 shoes, 
but were obviously from men, but there was also a group of shoe soles belonging to much smaller feet, which she felt uh, showed all classic signs of having been women's footwear. And so we concluded from that that our rubbish dump was receiving waste from the kitchens and from the buildings at this end of the precinct. And it wasn't uh, a part of a monastery that was occupied by the monks. It was part of a monastery that was occupied by guests. And I think that's the clue to what the building which we see here in front of us, this red sandstone building occupied by the Shropshire Wildlife Trust, really was. It was all about accommodating visitors to the Abbey. And they could come by river up the old eastern channel and they could dock their boat in front of this row of arches and go uh, into the basement of this building. And at first floor level there were two halls. And we know from other better preserved monasteries elsewhere in England that there were always one or more guest halls so that guests coming to stay at the abbey could be properly, properly fed in the monastery and where they got fed depended on how important they were. So there was a, a guest hall for poorer people and a guest hall for richer, more important people. And if you were really, really important and came with loads of servants and a baggage train with more than 12 horses, that was a tradition in some monasteries, then the abbot himself would have to put you up in his own private quarters. But what we think this building is in the Shropshire Wildlife Trust western end of a monastery is a combined uh, series of guest halls over wharfage and some kind of warehousing but it's one of the more unusual buildings that you will find anywhere in medieval Shropshire and that really concludes our tour of Shrewsbury Abbey but it's just worth reminding yourselves of the context of all this so on the way back into town, let's turn around so our back is to the Shropshire Wildlife Trust and this fantastic weird sandstone building that they inhabit. And I'm looking at Old Potts Way with traffic thundering past me going from right to left. Beyond that, the railway viaduct. Beyond that, the car park at the back of your United Reformed Church. But of course all that doesn't really exist in my mind because I'm an archaeologist and what I see here is another channel of the River Severn, the old eastern channel, about 70 metres wide at this point, which has completely disappeared. But to get back to Shrewsbury, you don't have to cross two channels of the River Severn, you just have to cross the one and an awful lot of traffic as well. So there you have it. Have you caught your breath yet? That was quite a long tour, wasn't it? Um, Shrewsbury Abbey is a truly remarkable place. And uh, whilst producing this with Nigel, um, there, there are times when I gasped with some of the facts that he was just spilling out. And uh, just to let you know, Nigel didn't bring any notes. This is all off the top of his head. He's that clever. He's that great. Um, thank you so much for, for taking part in this tour today. I hope you enjoyed it. There were so many more throughout the town. Um, if you're listening to this for the website, um, please take a look at the tours we have littered across the town. I want to say a huge thank you to Nigel Baker. He is fantastic at what he does and he's a genuine inspiration of mine. So we're very lucky to have sampled his voice many times throughout these tours. <laughs>